surrendered to your wisdom and that your ways would be ours. And we thank you, God, for just um, allowing us to be together and to be before you and to have your word. And we trust you and ask you to minister to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, it's been five Sundays now since we were last in Ezra. I don't think um, in, in preaching years, that's like a lifetime um, to um, go that long and, you know, before getting back to a series. But if you may recall, I, I w- just got started with Ezra. We spent three Sundays there. Spring break came, and so I was off traveling with our second-year students. And then there was Palm Sunday, which we have testimonies, and then last Sunday, Easter. Um, and so now, after five Sundays, we're back in Ezra. And so we will pick it up here in chapter 4. I'm going to do a little bit of review first. But I just want to, again, um, just get my, um, um, you know, endorsement, not endorsement, but amen to Jeff and Heather talking about the need for nursery helpers. And um, our students, you all have your background checks, so you can help out too if you'd like. Um, Patsy and I, we were, while I was in seminary and we were newly married, I was attending a small Bible church in Mesquite, Texas, um, Mesquite Bible Church. And boy, they just, when you walked through the door, they just grabbed you. And they said, you will be in the nursery. And I, okay. And, um, you know, the days were different in those days. You didn't have to back, have background checks or, you know, training videos. And they, and they said, this is not a choice. Um, you will have a month. And we're assigning you to the two-year-olds. Okay. So our month came, and we walk in the room, and I think there were 22-year-olds. We almost decided not to have children after that. (laughs) But I appreciated the church just wanting to get everybody involved and just saying, don't consider this an option. And it was really a great way to get to know the families in the church as well as their children. I'll never forget, one little girl was a biter. Uh, (laughs) She bit every kid in in that Sunday school class, in that nursery. Until one Sunday... (laughs) One Sunday, I heard this blood-curdling scream, and Patsy and I both turned to see what was going on, and her finger was in the mouth of another boy, and he was biting her for all his life, <laughs> and I couldn't hardly get his jaws apart, and um, I, had to, I had to tell the parents when they picked up their little daughter, I said, if you look at your finger, her, your daughter's finger, you'll see she's missing one, but um, um, <laughs> she waves like this now, and... Um, so I'm really sorry. There's nothing we could do. There's 20 kids. And, and, and mom said, don't worry about it. We know she's a biter. Now maybe she won't bite anybody anymore. Um, so that's my experience with two-year-olds. Um, we skipped that age group when we had our children. <laughs> Sent them off to my mom and dad. Anyway, we're in Ezra chapter 4. And before we pick up here with Ezra 4, because it's been five Sundays, I need to give a little bit of review of what's going on. And you remember that Israel was taken into captivity. First, to the northern tribes, Israel, the Assyrians came against them, and the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, uh, the Babylonians came. And when the Babylonians first dispersed them, there were three different dispersions. The first one took place in 605 B.C. And then from that point, the clock began to tick. And God prophesied through Jeremiah that it would be a 70-year captivity. So in the days of Daniel, he's reading Jeremiah, and he sees the 70 years is almost over. And so Daniel begins to pray that the people would truly be repentant so that God could release them from captivity and send them home. And then when Cyrus became king, Cyrus king of the Medo-Persians, 
the first thing he did, crack out of the box. First, first year as, as emperor, he made a decree that all the Jews could go back to their homeland. And we know that that was even prophesied, that he, it was given by prophecy that, that Cyrus, his very name, would issue a decree for the return of the Jewish people and the rebuilding of the temple. And so he let, let them go. He encouraged them to go. He even contributed financially um, for the rebuilding of the temple. He told all the Jews everywhere they could go home, and that if they don't go home, that they should contribute to the rebuilding of the temple as well. Less than 50,000 returned under Zerubbabel. They will return in three waves. Zerubbabel is the first, and that's Ezra 1 through 6. And then there will be a, a small group that will come with Ezra in chapters 7 through 10. And then there will be another small group that comes with Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah. And so when that decree was issued that they could return, it's not quite 70 years. But, by, but from the first deportation in 605 to when the temple work began in 536 B.C., it was 70 years. And so, and then from the destruction of the temple, which was not in 605, it was a little later, to the actual finishing of the temple was also 70 years. And so the 70 years were completed in two different ways. One, from the dispersion when it started to when the decree was given to return and the temple foundation was laid, that was 70 years. And then the other, from the destruction of the temple to the completion of the temple, that was also 70 years, or 70 and a half years to be precise. So they're back in the land now, and um, the first thing that happens is they, they realize, we've got enemies all around us. God has orchestrated sovereignly to let us be back in the land. Cyrus could have opposed that like Pharaoh opposed. I made that point, but he didn't. Pharaoh chose the hard way. Pharaoh could have done just like Cyrus and said, Moses says, let my people go, and, Cyrus, and Pharaoh could have gone, I see, that's a good idea. What are we holding these people for? But he chose the hard way instead of the easy way. Cyrus chooses the easy way. And both men, God is glorified and honored, and both men, God's will was accomplished. But that doesn't mean there weren't any enemies in the land. And when they get back to Israel, it's been occupied by people when when it was taken into captivity, when the Israelites and the people of Judah were taken into captivity, those kings, they populated Israel with other nation groups, and they weren't believing nations. And so these people are there. It's been their home now for all these years. And so they didn't take too kindly to these Israelites flooding back in and rebuilding a temple at Jerusalem. And so there was opposition, and the people of Israel were terrified. And so they did three things in chapter 3 in response to their situation. They're back home. God has made it clear this is where they're supposed to be. And there's no way other than just, just explaining it, but just other than miracle, that, they, that Cyrus has done exactly as God prophesied would happen. But there's enemies, and they are truly at risk. So what do you do? First thing they did, they built an altar to the Lord. And they understood here. That this, the answer, we cannot fight our enemies on their terms. We are outnumbered. There's no way we can handle this. God put us in this land, and God is going to have to protect us. Good for you, Israelites. And so they didn't even attempt to fight them, war with them. They, they just said, we can only turn to God. And that's what that altar represented. What do you do when the nations around you hate you and want to kill you? You better make sure you're right with God, because the only defender you have is God. 
And so they didn't look to themselves, to their arms, or anything else to protect them. They said, we have to have God protect us. And they knew the biggest problem we have is sin. And so the altar was there so that they would confess their sin, make sacrifice for their sin in order to be right with God. And as they're right with God, they, they trust that God will protect them. And they did this, it says in chapter 3, as it is written. And so we find this, this just, just adamant commitment. We have got to live by God's word now. The whole reason we went into captivity is because we were not living by God's word and we became just like all the nations around us. We've got a chance to set this right now. And so that means we have to, in coming back to God, we have to come back to his word. I stress those two things all the time because a lot of times today in our evangelical Um, Christianity, which is very experience-based, and everybody's got their own truth, we can say, and I hear it all the time, I am walking with God. But the way that they're walking with God is inconsistent, contradictory to God's Word. And you can't have it both ways. If you're walking with God, you will be walking with God according to His Word, and not just according to your thoughts, your experiences, or what you think is right, but what God says is right. And so that's what they've found. They have to come back to God as it is written in His Word. So they build an altar. They reestablish the feast, and they celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. That Feast of Tabernacles, it's interesting that that was the one... All this happened in the fall of the year. I mean, sorry, the spring of the year. These, These are the spring feasts. And this Feast of the Tabernacles... Of all just timeliness of it, because this is saying, this remembering their days in the wilderness, when they're 40 years in the wilderness living in tabernacles or living in tents, living in booths. And so once a year, they were supposed to reenact that, to remember that, and not forget how God took care of them in the wilderness. What's the point? We need God more than we need nice homes. Nothing's more important than God. And if we, can live, if we can live in a tent and have God, we're better off than living in a palace and not having God. And so every year they had to remember that God is number one. So they'd sleep in a tent for a whole week. Children, everybody. So as this is just drilled into them, God is the indispensable part of our life. Not a part of our life. He is life and he is indispensable. We have no life apart from him. He is the one that makes life And without him, there is no life. And then the last thing they did is they laid the foundation of the temple. And at the end of the chapter 3, some of them are praising God. Others of them are crying. And it was just this this cacophony of of sounds, praising, crying, all of it loud. The old men are weeping because the temple foundation they can see is much less than what it was in the days of Solomon. And the ones that are, are shouting with joy is because now they're started back with, with God's temple being reestablished and they can begin functioning as the community of God here on earth. And that's where we left it. And now in chapter 4, the enemies begin to raise their head once again and to oppose them. And so chapter 4 is all about how the enemies are trying to stop the work of God. And that specific work being the rebuilding of the temple. And this is very um, important because it gives us um, an insight, a window into how Satan wants to stop God's work. We are God's work. God does not have a temple today on this planet. That's going to happen again. We know that from Scripture. But the temple 
is not the ultimate work of God. Stephen was very clear with this in Acts chapter 7, trying to tell the Jewish people, you put way too much stock in the temple. There is another work of God, and that is the work that God is doing spiritually in the hearts of people. The work of regeneration, salvation, the work of bringing people to himself, the work of transforming people, the work of bringing people into conformity to Christ. Throughout the New Testament, individual Christians are called the temple of God. The local church is called the temple of God. So there, there obviously with that connection, a temple being built here, rebuilt in Ezra chapter 4, and knowing that we are the temple of God, I'm making a connection here. I don't think it's a stretch that as, as Satan was opposing the reconstruction of that temple, he also is opposing the work of God today. And the church is the work of God. There is no other explanation for it. We are a supernatural, miraculous, spiritual entity. And Satan is, is absolutely opposed to the church as well as to individual believers because we are the temple of God. So how does Satan oppose the reconstruction of this temple? Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households, and they said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Ashardon, king of Assyria, who brought us up from here. So this is a very subtle way, and it's a, it, is, it is an attack by infiltration, which would result in compromise and result in, in also having to be indebted to these people. So they're just kind of slipping in. And it's, it, is, it is an attack, as I said, by infiltration. It's not a direct frontal assault. They're coming to them as friends, as helpers, people who have the same agenda, the same faith. We're on the same page. We want the same thing. And it's deceitful. It's not right. So let's see about these people. Go back with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings 17. Part of what they say is true. And that's always the danger with how Satan works. He always, um, not always, but most of the time, he, he has truth in what he is saying. I said 2 Kings 17. That's not right. Yeah, it is. Um, 2 Kings 17. I want to just, it starts in verse 24 and goes to the end of 2 Kings 17. And I don't want to read all of it, partly because the names are really hard to pronounce and, and, I, and I look ridiculous trying to go through them. But in verse 24, it says, The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and then he lists all these other places, and he puts them in Samaria to live in its cities. Now, this is a region of Israel. Okay, It's, it's along the Jordan River, Samaria. And it came about at the beginning of their living there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now, that's a good way to get people to fear God, right? So they move into this new country, and, and back in these days, everybody believed that every nation had its own gods, and you needed to show respect to those gods. And so these people did not believe that the God of Israel was the God of the universe. They believed that he was simply the God of that territory. Step across the river and you had another God that you need to respect. But while they're in the territory of Israel, 
they needed to fear that local deity. So already from the beginning, they're messed up because he's not a local deity. But God sent lions to try and encourage them in the right direction. And so they they spoke to the king of Assyria and they said, help, we don't know what to do. We're being slaughtered by lions. We need some instruction on how to worship the local deity. And so, verse 27, the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Well, that looks good. Keep reading. So then we see, down in verse 31, that they, these people who were fearing God were burning their children alive in the fire to their gods. Okay, that is anything but fearing God. And so this is a mixed now faith that they have. They have their faith where they, where they burn their children alive, and they've just incorporated into that the worship of the God of Israel. Verse 32 They also feared the Lord. How does that work? They're burning their children alive to their idols and fearing God. Verse 33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the customs of the nations. Verse 34, to this day, they do according to their earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord. Nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or their law or their commandments, which the Lord commanded the sons of the of the Lord commanded the Jacob and whose name is Israel. So in verse 33, they fear God. Verse 34, they don't fear God. Verse 41, so while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols, their children likewise, and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. That's who Ezra's that Zerubbabel is dealing with. We, today, we would call these people the Samaritans. They weren't called Samaritans in the days of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. That's a more modern term that we see in the, in the Gospels. But this is where the Samaritans came from. They were a pagan, Gentile group of people who were brought to Israel by the kings of Assyria and Babylon, And then they began to intermarry with the Jewish population that was there, which weren't very many. And they they worshipped both pagan gods and the God of Israel. So it's a mixed worship. It is not a pure worship. And so it's these people that now come and say, we're worshipping the same God. I hope you're seeing the application here. This is one of the problems with preaching, especially now with live streams. It's no longer just preaching to the people in the room. But you know there are lots of people who claim to be Christians, and it is anything but a pure faith. Anything but. And as I say, one of the ways that, that litmus tests for me, that, and I'm a simple guy, so I like simple things, is that one of the simplest ways to tell where a person's faith really is, is ask them, what happens to you if you, lose, if you leave that church that you're involved in? Do you lose your salvation? Do you lose your right standing with God? And if they say yes, then that is not a pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ. There is a major problem there. So they may come ring your doorbell. 
They may, they may even go to, to your family reunions, I don't know, and they may say, I'm a Christian just like you. I believe in Jesus just like you. I believe that Jesus alone died for my sins and rose again. I believe that through faith alone we're saved. Sounds great. What happens to you if you leave your church? Well, then I, I go to hell. I lose my salvation. Go to purgatory. Huh. You just told me salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And now you're telling me if you leave the people you're involved with, that you can't be assured that you were ever saved to begin with or you've lost your salvation. That doesn't work that way. That is not a pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ. And I have to question whether you're really saved. Now again, ultimately, that's up to God to decide. I can't decide it, but I'm telling you, these people claim to be worshiping the same God. And in a sense, they did. But they were also sacrificing their children in the fires. They worshiped the gods of the land. And as, as Zerubbabel says, we have nothing in common with you. We are not the same. And don't you just love the tact here, verse 3? But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, let's just be kind and gentle, and, and, and I just want to say this as tactfully as, as I can. No! You have nothing in common with us. These people weren't snowflakes. I'm telling you. I mean, today you don't talk like that. I mean, it's, you know, we've become so sophisticated and careful, and we don't want to offend anybody and step on anybody's toes. And Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the father's households are saying, take a hike, get lost. We have nothing in common with you or you with us. Why are we, I mean, again, when, you, when these people, God put them in this land. They don't need these people. They have the Lord. They're not risking anything except they're not going to be liked. And they don't say, so what? I can deal with that. I can't deal with a faith that has become polluted by the worship of other gods. So I want you to just look at some New Testament parallels here with me. If you go over to 2 Corinthians 11.3, we'll start in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11.3, this is just the central thing that Paul had on his mind as, as he was dealing with the churches he says, I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by, her, by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. See, this is how Satan works. Subtly, he just wants to infiltrate. He wants to come in and represent that there's no big difference here. Our differences are minor. And they're anything but minor. And so here... Paul is saying he hasn't changed tactics. What he did with Eve is what he's, what he's doing to the people of Israel as they're back in the land and what he's still doing today, trying to move us away from that simple and pure devotion to Christ. This is another litmus test. 
And I say this all the time as, as, as our students leave his hill and they go out and find other churches when they go back home or whatever. And, you know, it's hard. I understand. We pray for our students all the time about this. But this is what you want to find. It's not about the quality of worship. It's not about whether everybody is on the same page with Calvinism or Arminianism or dispensationalism or Reformed theology. And most churches are known about one of those things. All the worship, come to our church, tremendous worship. Go, come to our church. We're all into the doctrines of grace, Calvinism. Oh, come to our church, and on and on. Pure and simple devotion to Jesus is the one thing, the only thing that matters. That's it. And Paul says, Satan is such a clever deceiver. He will substitute all kinds of good things that you would move away from the one thing, the best thing, the highest thing, which is Jesus, in a simple and pure devotion to him. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And again, the we here is collective, so it means we as the church are the temple of God. And these things, these rhetorical questions that he's asking, we know what the answer to them is. We should not be unequally yoked when it comes to the spiritual work of God and the church. Or it becomes, and again, marriage is a spiritual work of God, and then again, and we rightly apply this to marriage. But this is not even his primary application. It's the church's primary application. That there should not be a mixture of light and darkness, of Christ and Satan. And he asked this very simple question, which he knows, the answer is assumed, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. Nothing. And Paul knows, he's a realist, I'm sure, I have no question in my mind that Paul had friends that were not believers. We all do. And man, you can love that unbeliever, as we should. You can enjoy the same things. Go play golf together with that unbeliever. You know, go hunting together with that unbeliever. And man, you, 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 you just enjoy life together. You have the same interest. Sure you do. But none of those things matter. The one thing that matters is the spiritual reality. And if you don't have Christ in common, you've got nothing in common. Because all those other things will change. They do. May get to where I can't walk the golf course anymore or see the ball to hit it. So golfing goes away. Can't hunt anymore. Can't fish anymore. So those things go away. So is that really what binds us? Common interest? The one thing that never changes is Jesus. And when I have Christ in common with with somebody I've got something that will be in common for all of eternity. And that is the ground and the basis for fellowship and identification. Nothing else. Doesn't mean I can't like and have friends, close friends that are unbelievers, but I need to understand. 
I have nothing in common if I don't have Christ in common. And that will never change. The church needs to know this. Single Christians need to know this when they're looking at marriage. If you do not have Jesus in common with this person, you've got nothing in common with this person. And the same thing is true with the church. We need to be very careful about who we wed ourselves to as the people of God. And then he continues and he says at the end of verse 16, 17, 18, he says, For we are the temple of the living God. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And he's not, again, talking about lifestyle, dress. It involves those things, but he's talking first and foremost about that simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. And I will welcome you. Do not touch what is unclean. I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, protecting holiness in the fear of God. It would be hard to overestimate the importance of rebuilding that temple to the people of Israel. But I can say there's something more important, and that is the temple of God, which is the church. And we have to understand that we are constantly under satanic assault. And one of those assault um, way, the ways that the devil assaults us is to infiltrate and to cause us to be polluted from within by having us be wed with the thoughts and ways of the world. And we're no longer responsive to God, to Jesus Christ as the head of the church, living according to his heart, his mind, his word, but we're doing things according to the world and its counsel. I want you to look over with me at 1 Corinthians, where another place where the temple of God collectively is mentioned, 1 Corinthians chapter, um, <clears throat> chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, I had to go back too far, 1 Corinthians about the individual church, our bodies, 2 Corinthians, oh my mind, sorry, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I do want to go here. This is, a, and again, an, an incredible thing that Paul's having to deal with, an incredible passage of Scripture. It has to do with his, this, this whole letter to the Corinthians. If it's can sum up in one thing, Paul's saying, you don't want to, want to know what your problem is? You become too proud. And he says, I preach Christ and Him crucified. So let me tell you about the cross. And every chapter of Corinthians, in one way or another, he's bringing them back to the cross. That's all it is. He just keeps bringing them back to the cross of Jesus Christ and what it looks like to live in humble um, devotion to him. And so he introduces at the end of chapter 2 the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man, which is the difference between saved and lost. And then in chapter 3, he says, I had to talk to you people. To this day, I'm having to talk to you as though you were carnal, fleshly, immature. So he says in verse 3, you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? So you're carnal. I'm having to give you flesh, meat. I'm, and, and I'm having to treat you like you are just carnal people and I can't give you meat. 
And he goes on and he speaks through this for the rest of the chapter. And then he comes over to this. And he says in verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? All of you collectively are a temple. So he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the body of Christ, the local church. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This is obviously a very serious warning. Now, some church traditions have mistakenly taken this to be a statement about suicide. It is not. That is a grave mistake. If it were about suicide, then it would have to, he would have to have said in verse 16, do you not know that you, plural, are temples, plural? But he doesn't say temples, plural. He says temples, singular, which means he's talking about the local church. And he's not talking about destroying your body. He's talking about destroying this body, the corporate body, the local church. How do you destroy a local church? The local church is a spirit work. You destroy a spirit work by making it a flesh work. By, the, by you look at a church over a period of time and you go, there is no difference between that church and the Lions Club down the street. They're doing everything exactly like the world does. It ought to be different. It ought to be distinct because God is distinct. He is a holy God and His people ought to be a holy, distinct people. There should be no explanation about a church that can be explained in terms of the world. And if it is, it's no longer functioning as a spirit entity. The total explanation for a church ought to be what God has done, not what we have done. The same thing about our own lives as Christians. There should be no explanation for our life other than God, because it's the work of God. And so when you destroy a church by simply letting it being infiltrated with the thought patterns and values of the world. It's no longer a spirit entity in, in functionality when it is functioning according to the ways and thoughts of the world. This is very, very serious. So no wonder Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the heads of the, family, of the households were saying, no way. We can see what's going on here. We have to be constantly vigilant, vigilant about this. So this is one of the things, let me just, and it, and it comes down, I mean, we can, you can point to all kinds of things, but it's, it's not just issues like divorce and remarriage or transgenderism or homosexuality. Yes, it involves those things because we need to make sure we are thinking as Scripture says, that we are living our lives as it is written. That's the point here. But it's more than just that. It's that whole mindset that I can have, that I know better than God's archaic, antiquated word. You've got to be kidding. That somehow my wisdom and the wisdom of this world is better, superior than the wisdom of God. It always starts with saying, well, that was just cultural. That was just for that time. Or you're just, or, you know, or we can't live that way today. It's too hard. It's too unreasonable. That's where it starts. I've made this observation with our students. You know, at one time, all the major universities across Europe and the United States were Christian universities. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, they were Christian universities. 
There's no doubt about it. You can go back and read their founding documents to this day. Those same universities had seminaries on campus, which was not a problem because the university was Christian. There is no problem with having a seminary on campus. Today, none of those universities are Christian. And almost all of them still have seminaries on campus. None of those seminaries are conservative. None of those seminaries teach the Bible. We know that's a fact. And so finally, Christians woke up and they said, you cannot get a conservative education at a liberal university, at a secular university. When they discredit the Bible and throw it off right from the beginning, they just say, man's words means nothing. It's not the word of God. We have a higher wisdom for you. And so Christians, for the last hundred years or so, have recognized if you're going to get a Bible-based education, one that takes God seriously at his word, don't go to where the seminary is located on a secular campus. Because those professors, some of them, I have no doubt, godly men, are going to be influenced by the culture that they're living within. They're going to be impacted by their colleagues. Read some of the writings of Karl Barth, for example. Karl Barth has some very warm, heartfelt devotion to Jesus Christ. You can't read Karl Barth and some of his things and go, this is a man who didn't know Jesus. He had to have known Jesus. But he also lived in the midst of a secular environment where all of his colleagues denied Jesus. And they were intellectuals. And it's hard to be among your intellectuals and be treated like a fool. And so there's a drift that takes place. I know a guy wrote, wrote what was the most authoritative book that had yet been written on divorce and remarriage. Excellent book. Historical. Went back and looked at all the, for 2,000 years of church history, what the church has taught, examined the scriptures in depth, and came to the conclusion that there is absolutely no grounds for divorce. Marriage is permanent, and there is no grounds for divorce. He's changed his view. And he wrote a lengthy paper on why he changed his view. He didn't need it to be lengthy. He could have said it in one sentence because he says it in the paper. I changed my view, not on the basis of God's word, not on the basis of anything I saw that I, didn't, that I overlooked when I first wrote my book, but I changed my view because no one in the academic circles that I hobnob with backed me up. I was a lone voice. This stuff matters. I said last week in our Easter sermon where Paul says, writing about the resurrection, in the context of the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. And what he's talking about is being with Christians who live as though Jesus is not raised from the dead. Well, if, how do you do that? You don't trust in his wisdom. You don't trust in his ways. You don't trust in scripture. You don't believe that Jesus is alive and sufficient today for my problems. So I've got to turn everywhere else for help other than to Jesus. Because Jesus, for all practical purposes, is dead. I am not trusting him. There are Christians that live as though Christ is dead. Paul says those Christians are bad company. It infiltrates. It's an attack by infiltration. And it is just as dangerous as a head-on assault. 
We have to be on our guard. The second thing, that didn't work. So the next tactic, verse 4, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They discouraged them, they frightened them, and they hired counselors to frustrate their counsel. I don't know all that's going on here. It doesn't tell us how they discourage them, how they frighten them. It doesn't even tell us what these counselors were counseling. Maybe there were counselors that were telling them how to get along with the people. Because after all, they had a system of government. They had their ways of doing things. They would have had their local laws and stuff. And so maybe they hired people to tell them, what are the local ordinances? And how do you do this? How do you get butter? How do you get building supplies? And so they were maybe just talking to different people. What's another word for counselors? Experts. Right? They know more than you do. They're the local experts. How much has the church been discouraged and frightened in this last year because of experts? Right? And we listen to everybody but God. God said, go back and build a building. Do they have any reason to be discouraged or frightened? No. None. None. But they listen to these local experts who are saying, can't be done. Don't do this. Oh, you're just pointless. It's, you know, you're going to get hurt. And they were discouraged and afraid. In the last verse of the chapter, then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. And it stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Unbelievable. They didn't stop because of a new decree. Stop building. No. They stopped for no good reason. They hit that that assault of infiltration, but they can't stand against that direct assault. They're afraid. As we all are when there is direct assault. But they had the, the political freedom even authorization to continue. They could have continued, but they were afraid. I'm not going to go into it, but these verses 6 through 23 are just a long parenthesis. Chronologically, they don't fit. They're not here to show us the chronology of what's happened. They're here to just illustrate opposition. These verses 6 through 23 actually leapfrog 80 years ahead. And then in verse 24, he comes back to the original time. So in, in, in verses 6 and, and 7, he mentions Ahasuerus, who is Xerxes, who was the king that Esther married. Esther wasn't alive during this time. And then Artaxerxes, the king that followed Xerxes. And Artaxerxes issues decrees for stopping the rebuilding of the city. So look at these verses real quick. It says in verse 11, this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him to King Artaxerxes. Verse 12, it says, these people are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Verse 13, now let it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, and then in, in, um, in verse 16, we inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls um, finished, so this is not about the temple. 
Ezra has just thrown this in here to show us another example of the kind of opposition that they were facing. But this opposition resulted in a direct decree to stop rebuilding, not the temple, but the city walls. And so Artaxerxes writes and says in verse 21, So now issue a decree to make these men stop the work, that the city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. And he will, that decree will only last two years. And Nehemiah, who is his cupbearer, after two years of being told they can't finish the rebuilding of the city, Nehemiah steps in, God uses him, and they get back on track with rebuilding the city. So then, verse 23, as soon as the copy of the, of, of the King Artaxerxes' document was read, then they, they went by force and stopped the Jews from rebuilding the city. All of that is a parenthesis, just to give an example of the kind of opposition. It is not chronological. So that's why I'm skipping it, Lord, Lord. But the main point is they were infiltrated and they stood against that. That the second form of attack is a direct frontal assault and they caved. They were discouraged and they were afraid. And what happened? They stopped the work of God. Somebody's phone is telling me it's time to stop. <laughs> I just want you to think about that. There is no reason for God's work to stop. There may come a day when we truly have to stop meeting together openly, publicly like this. That doesn't mean that God's people should stop meeting. There will be other ways that we should meet. Because this is not an option. As I've said many times during this past year, we are a corporate body. And it is meant to be expressed corporately. And you are not worshiping to not be a part if all you do is, is worship alone. That is not what God intended when he put you in the body of Christ. You need the body, and the body needs you. And we must adhere to this, no matter what kind of fear and discouragement is thrown at us. We are always going to be attacked. This is a good work that God's doing. It is a good work that God's doing here among us. It's not due to me. It's not due to the elders. It's not due to anybody. It's God's work. But once it becomes man's work, it's over. It's dead. We've just killed the church. We have just destroyed the church. So we need to be on our guard against the humanistic type of Christianity that doesn't live as though Jesus is alive. Christ is alive, and it is His church. We must be on guard against that. But we also need to not be frightened or discouraged by the opposition that comes against us when we speak clearly about what God has said in His Word. We will be opposed. What else would we expect? We're not going to be imposed when we become just like the world. But if God is doing a good work that involves a pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ, there's going to be opposition, and there should be. I'll close this in prayer. God, I do thank you for the word. It is all inspired, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that includes these ancient writings that, that of Zerubbabel and Ezra, Nehemiah, all that took place, they are for our instruction, that we might learn and be profited. And I thank you, God, for including them in your counsel. I pray that we would be a people, God, who are just wanting to listen to your voice, and that we would be alert and zealous, God, to put off every voice that takes us away from that simple and pure devotion to Jesus. 
And I pray, God, that we would just have your strength in the midst of a world where you know we live. You, you know this, God, better than we, that it is a dark world. It is Satan's world. And we're in it as sheep. And God, we, we look to you to keep us, to protect us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, God, when our hearts are faint, that we might continue to walk uprightly with you without fear. And I thank you, God, that you are more than adequate for this world that we live in today. In Jesus' name, amen.